Welcome to Sabbath School for June 6, 2020. We have another wonderful lesson to dive into today about the history of the Bible and how it applies to our time and how we can interpret it and apply it in our lives. But before we get to that, we have to have our mission program. Today's global mission feature is one of the mission spotlight videos, this time talking about the importance and power of the health message in winning souls to Christ. Check it out. When doctors told Resta he had type 2 diabetes, he didn't know exactly what to do. He was immediately put on three medications, and none of them seemed to help. Eventually, Resta visited a nearby Adventist healthcare clinic. At the clinic, they taught me how to change my lifestyle, and since then, I don't take any medication. I eat a vegan diet, and I work out a lot. Resta's health transformation inspired him to attend the Adventist University in Hungary to get certified in lifestyle consultation. Because I have diabetes, I really want to help other people with this disease. That's my motivation. Today, Resta is the coordinator of a global mission urban center of influence in Debrecen, the second largest city in Hungary. This center provides a number of services, including assault room, therapeutic massage, medical advice for asthma and lung problems, and grief and addiction counseling. From the first moment they come here, we tell them everything is based on Christianity. Our base is the Bible. The Christian care and professional services visitors receive encourage them to return for other programs. We are very lucky because God gave us six doctors who are church members and also more than 10 members who are working in the healthcare field. I think it's a good opportunity for us to help people and work together for people. I think it's a very important place because in church we can treat the spiritual health of people. And here, we can treat the body and give them advice about the body. I think this place is like a bridge between the people of the city and the church. This urban center of influence started through total member involvement when Anna Maria decided to open a small bookstore where people could relax, socialize, and browse faith-based books. People don't have proper connections with each other. They are just rushing all the time. We were trying to reach out to those people who didn't have proper and pure connections with others. We wanted to pray with them and for them. Through this ministry, several people have come to know Jesus. There's a woman who had several problems and came into the store. I was able to recommend some books and support. We talked, and I invited her to church, and she became a church member. It was like a miracle how much of a loving atmosphere there was. They were very kind to me. They offered for me to sit down and talk with them. I'm very thankful for this center, and I'm thankful I can share my new beliefs and love with others. Another way Adventists spread love is through their annual event called Reach Out with Flowers. Each year, one of the church members grows thousands of daffodils on his land and donates them for all the church members to give out freely in the community. Many people ask why we do this. The answer is simple. Just because we want to show love and be a blessing to people in the city. Adventists and Debreson are trying to connect with people in creative ways. Whether it's through medical services or partnering in city events, they want to be involved in the community. Please pray that their outreach efforts continue to spread the love of Jesus to the people of this large city. Thank you for supporting Global Mission, which supports projects like these in cities around the world. Now, as important as that global work is, we must always remember that we have a work right here that the Lord has given us. And in the Michigan Conference, one of those working tools that we have been blessed with is the Emanuel Institute. And today we have a special guest with us. In fact, it is none other than Pastor Mark Howard himself in the flesh. I'm so glad to be here today. I bet you are. I hope you stick around for our lesson study a little later. Yeah, I think I could do that. You think that. you can make that? Sure. Okay, now. Now talk to us a little bit about the Emanuel Institute. What is the Emanuel Institute and how does it serve the Michigan Conference? 
Well, let's see. The Emanuel Institute was established in 2009 here in Michigan, and its purpose initially is it's primarily for lay training church members to go out and share their faith. Uh, primarily, we had trained people who wanted to get into Bible work. We ran a 14-week program, mm -hmm. a full program where people would come and stay, eat there, and everything else. And so mostly you get young people who wanted to get involved in Bible work for a period of time. Mm -hmm. So that's how we started out. And we chose the name Emmanuel, hearkening back to Emmanuel Missionary College, when our schools used to have the focus of, I don't want to say used to, but right. they all have missionary in the name of the school. Right. And the mentality was a missionary isn't just somebody who goes overseas. A missionary is every Seventh-day Adventist who is, um, by their own profession, a part of the proclamation of the Three Angels' messages wherever they go. Okay, so the Emanuel Institute started as and continues to be that training arm for lay people yes. specifically, but you said at one time it was a longer program and it was more young people go. How has it changed over the years to its present state? Well, I wouldn't say more young people go, but it was almost exclusively young people and they would come from different places versus what we realized is we weren't impacting our local congregations here in Michigan the way that we felt we should be. Okay. And so early on, while we were still running the 14-week program, we would we started doing shorter training sessions, like mm -hmm. a 10-day session and, that, and, and other types of trainings, um, where we have now morphed into that almost exclusively mm -hmm. uh, for multiple reasons. Um, Bible workers are not uh, being hired the same way they used to be and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And there are more churches who want to have their members trained for service in their local okay. area. We would train a student, young people, and then even if, a, even if a church sponsored them, they'd go get a Bible work job somewhere across the country. Mm. So it wouldn't impact the local church the way that people from a specific church, in fact, when you were pastoring in Muskegon, you mm -hmm. had several of your people come from Muskegon Church to an Emmanuel session, just a 10-day session, and then they went back and began to infuse that missionary spirit That's right, that, that mindset definitely set a course yes. for that church for quite a while there, and that was a blessing. And so you want to see, and I think the conference leadership has in mind for the Emmanuel Institute that it not just be a destination place once in a while, but it really to, what was the word, infuse that missionary right. spirit throughout the laity of all of our church members. Absolutely. Now, with that goal in mind, I understand that there's going to be a, uh, obviously this year there's been a lot of adjustments to schedules and whatnot, but there had already been in the plan and still is in the plan a, uh, an on-location session coming up this fall here in Michigan. Yeah, well, just to be clear, there has been a lot of confusion with Emanuel Institute because when I transitioned into the conference office, Sabbath School Personal mm -hmm. Ministries Department, um, as our specific, one of our specific roles is the training of lay people Emanuel Institute was just brought into or mm -hmm. under that umbrella. And so there have been several kind of retweaks that we need to do to the program. And we hadn't run a session for a while, change of location, everything else. So this mm -hmm. fall, last week of September and into the first week of October, I think we're doing seven days. We're starting on a, mm -hmm. a Sunday and ending on a Sabbath right here in, in fact, in the conference office, That's Lord right. willing, That's in right. light of this whole COVID thing. We're going to be running an Emanuel session where, where it's all day, every day. Um, we've got a, one of our local hotels booked. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the, the room, and room is covered, meals, two meals a day are covered, and, mm -hmm. and the people have to cover for a third if they want. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we're just going to be immersed in evangelism and soul winning. Uh, it's going to be fantastic. Fantastic and I think is the, the word. Yeah. I, it is the word. That's and right. uh, it's going to be... Uh, I think the, pro the cost of that is going to be $249 for everything. Wow, that includes what you mentioned, lodging and everything, or that's yeah. just the books and materials? That's, that's everything. And even if that $249 threshold is too much for an individual, I'm guessing there are local churches who would benefit oh, for sending people that they could help with a sponsorship too. So it sounds like you've made it. Nobody <laughs> leaves an Emmanuel session without a charge to go and put that that uh, training into practice. Exactly. So this isn't a vacation holiday no. thing. It's a training course to go back to that local field to really make an impact where the Lord has planted That's you. right. And I'll tell you something. Every session without that we've run, without exception, people have a personal spiritual revival along with it. Not only are they getting trained to win souls, but when a person gets through that process, there's something that just rekindles that love for the mission and the message of the Seventh-day Adventist Church in them. Mm. And so there's a personal revival that accompanies it. Amen. 
Well, friends, that sounds like it's too good to be true. Thank you, Pastor Howard, for Absolutely. telling us about it. And I would urge you to put it on your calendar and make it part of your budget to talk to your church and make plans to be part of the Emanuel Institute on location right here in Lansing, whether you're just driving in or even get take you know those hotel rooms, whatever it takes to get there. Make it part of your plans to be part of the Emanuel Institute this fall, God willing. And incidentally, we yes. have some some limited information. We're in the midst of, of, of moving our manual site into the Sabbath School Michigan SSPM site mm. and the information there. So if you're not finding everything you need right away, you can call us here at the office and we'll put the number on the screen or you can visit our website, either of the websites, and just know that in within the next couple of weeks, we'll have the current information there. There you go. Thanks so much again. Absolutely. All right, friends, we've talked about the global mission work We've seen the local work being done by the Emanuel Institute, and hopefully you can be part of that. But beyond just the conference-wide events, there's still an individual mandate for every person, every member to be a missionary for Jesus. Here's another testimony of how the Lord is working in the lives of individual people right here in our territory. My name is Jim Barber. So I was baptized uh, February 3rd of this year. I moved back here about 12 years ago. Um, my mother's health was failing, so I stayed with her to kind of help her. And she was studying with the uh, Seventh-day Adventist at that point. And I would sit in on her Bible studies, and they would do a church service with her. I would sit in on those. After a little time, the pastor would always ask me if I had any questions or anything like that. And, uh, you know, when I did, um, he would always answer, you know, well, let's see what the Bible has to say, which was kind of weird to me because going to different denominational churches, they never gave you an answer like that. They always just told you what they thought or, you know, what they felt it meant. So that was pretty unique and new. So I'm Pastor Sean Brizendine, and I pastor in the Sunday Church in Bessemer, Greenland, and also in Houghton. I became a pastor in June of 2015, and there was an event held at Camp Segola right around that time in 2015, and I remember meeting him. He came to a spring or fall retreat, one of those events that was held in the Upper Peninsula, and I remember interacting with him, and around that time when the other pastor I work with, Dr. C. Raymond Holmes, had given me a list of you know different friends of the church, his name was on that list, and so I began praying for him every day. We'd gone to the point in the preparation for baptism, he made a decision that he wanted to be baptized. And in that uh, preparation time, we went over different things that can hinder our relationship with Jesus, that get in between us and Christ, and they, they harm us. And he didn't have a problem with alcohol or tobacco, but caffeine had been a regular part of his life uh, for many years. And a lot of that stuff I've never been involved in anyway. Not a, I was never a big drinker, so that didn't, you know, wasn't much to give that up. Uh, I had quit smoking 30 years before, so that wasn't a problem. But uh, the caffeine was big in my life. Like I could drink two pots of coffee a day, and it really wouldn't bother me. I could go to sleep sleepless like a baby. And I just said, well, Lord can give you strength here, brother, and let's pray together. And we knelt down and prayed, and um, in the weeks that followed, from what I heard him say, that he had stopped using that, and I was just encouraging him, praying for him. One day in particular, I was at the local gas station in Hurley, Wisconsin, just right off the border from Michigan. I just saw that he was there too, and he stopped to fill up his company vehicle, and I just said, hey, how's it going, brother? You know, I'm praying for you, or whatever I said. And So I filled up my bus, I went in, and before I could get a cup of coffee, I heard, hey, brother Jim, how you doing? I was like, oh man, really? Yeah, Pastor Sean was right there. So I was like, I'm not getting any coffee today. <laughs> so I had no idea what was going on in his mind, but apparently that was a struggle that day. He was feeling extra tempted to just get a little cup of coffee. Well, the interaction, the encouragement was like his answer. I'd call it a divine appointment that, no, I'm not getting any coffee today. But yeah, that kind of curbed that. So. Yeah, it was a good thing I saw him before I had a cup of coffee in my hand. That would have been awkward. <laughs> Since I've been baptized, um, I've kept growing. Uh, Pastor Sean and I have continued Bible studies. Um, we started doing the uh, discipleship uh, mentorship program. And I travel with him a lot when he goes, if I'm able to, to the different churches in our area. And uh, I go along with them on different Bible studies. And then also, too, and, and with that, I recently become the new treasure for our church also. I want to be as involved as I can to 
for myself to grow and, and get other people to grow also. Praise the Lord for those wonderful testimonies of the local, global, and even personal work that the Lord is still doing all throughout the world. But right now we need to turn our attention to our Bible study, our lesson for the day, lesson 10 of our second quarter's uh, quarterly here, How to Interpret Scripture. And Pastor Howard, I'm going to tell you, this one gets into, uh, the title is The Bible as History. And we've yes. looked previously at Genesis and the more uh, far back, you know, histories. But this one's getting a little closer to our time, even though it's still quite removed. That's right. But uh, if you thought that the Genesis stuff was controversial within the science realm and the non-believers, there's still questions and even some controversy surrounding some of the things that are written long after the Genesis there record, the Old Testament, even New Testament record. So there's a lot to get into this week. Um, we we got to dive into it, but our, our uh, memory verse needs yes. to be brought to light. And so when you want to say something about that? Well... Again, we are encouraging, and we, st we started in the middle of this, actually, just, we were, we were reading the memory verse. Yes. And uh, we started suggesting the novel idea of memorizing the memory verse, like we expect our kids to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've, we've appreciated the response. We're looking for even more response. I've talked to a lot of people who say, hey, I really appreciate the challenge. But we've also asked the viewers to send in a short video. It does not have to be a professional video. Just, mm -hmm. just take your phone and, and, and record yourself or your family or friends reciting the memory verse, and we will include it in our, our program. But mo most of all, we want to encourage you to be memorizing the memory mm -hmm. verse each week. And here is an example of this week's memory verse. Good morning. Happy Sabbath. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Exodus 20, verse 2. So we've had our memory verse, and uh, we've looked at it, we've reviewed yes, it. Yes, and we appreciated that submission this week. We will, again, we want to encourage you to keep those coming in. And remember that we, we film these beforehand, mm -hmm. so uh, we would appreciate if you could send those ahead of time. Yeah, uh, early by, in the week is better. Yeah, yeah, we'd like to get them by Wednesday, no later than the Wednesday prior mm -hmm. to the Sabbath where the lesson is, where we study that particular lesson, then that allows us to have it ready in time. Perfect. Now. We've got a lot to dive into, as we yes, mentioned, we but before we do that, we need to start with a word of prayer. So Absolutely. let me start us with a word of prayer, and then you can lead us in the lesson study. Heavenly Father, again, we come to you so thankful for the way you have led in our past history. And as we study that history, the biblical history that you've recorded in the words of Scripture, help us to see it for what it is. Help us to understand the trustworthiness and reliability of your word, and to not only trust that it did happen, but then through that trust, find application in our lives today. So we ask that you would lead us into all truth, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Pastor Howard, this lesson. Well, before we dive into the lesson, I, you know, it's almost, we, we, we keep coming upon these things. The Bible is history, and I suppose maybe I'm speaking just for myself. But sometimes I look at this and I say, really? We're going to, I mean, do we need to discuss this? Don't like, we all How is this even this? a question? <laughs> but uh, you had pointed out a, an article that appeared in, uh, from a Seventh-day Adventist in a very recent article on this particular quarterly. In fact, the, the name of the article is Moribund, the State of Contemporary Conservative Adventist Hermeneutics. Moribund is an expression that refers to something that is ready to die and needs to die off. Mm. And so the idea is, and, and again, the language even, the state of contemporary conservative Adventist hermeneutics. It almost implies that there are different hermeneutics that are acceptable, but these conservatives have this, this, this thing, this kind of hermeneutic right. that's their own little. And in fact, the first uh, paragraph in that article says, nearly five years ago, at the conclusion of the San Antonio General Conference session, the GC General Conference Biblical Research Institute was authorized to team up with unnamed GC officials in revamping our hermeneutics document. Mm. Now, the whole thing sounds like a conspiracy theory. It does. Like, like there's unnamed people. And they're all going to do these changes. And they're and going to revamp. Uh, let me just be clear. Nothing was changed in mm. San Antonio 
as far in fact what we hold to as Seventh-day Adventists from a voted position is a position that was voted in 1986 mm -hmm. it was 2015 was the last GC session mm -hmm. okay nothing was changed from the 1986 statement methods of Bible study mm -hmm. uh, which was submitted and approved in the uh, submitted and approved at the 1986 annual council in Rio and uh, it was printed in the January 22, 1897, 1897, <laughs> 1987 Review and Herald. And uh, one of the references, well, books we've been meaning to reference on here repeatedly. Right, given this topic, yeah. That is available from the Adventist Book Center or from the Biblical Research Institute. And I forget how to get there, GC. We can put it on the screen. Biblical Research, yeah. yeah, put it on the screen. But again, the Adventist Book Center will have this as well. It's called Understanding Scripture. Uh, an Adventist approach. This is from the Biblical Research Institute of Seventh-day Adventists, which is a branch of the General Conference. And in this book, uh, in fact, I marked it here in our notes, starting with page 329 to 337, eight pages, you can read the entirety of that, those methods of Bible study that were voted in 1986. They weren't created in 1986. No, it's just they, written down, yeah. They, they're the same position that we have held. In, in fact, I, could, I dare say that they probably harmonize pretty closely with um, as far back as Ellen William White, Miller, called, William yeah, Miller's yeah. principles, William Miller had principles for interpreting scripture, and Ellen White attests to those in a um, review and herald of November 25, 1884, and quoting William Miller. Now, she, he had, a, I forget how many his total rules were, but she quotes mm -hmm. five of them as, a, as an example. Mm -hmm. But even the last one of Miller's rules, I think, sums up our Adventist understanding and much of what we talked about. Scripture must be its own expositor since it is a rule of itself. If I depend on a teacher to expound to me and he should guess at its meaning or desire to have it so on account of his sectarian creed or to be thought wise, then his, in other words, there's multiple reasons a scholar yeah, may come up with yeah. a, 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 a spin on things, a way he's going to read it, whatever. Miller says, then his guessing, desire, creed, or wisdom is my rule and not the Bible. Mm. So his rule number five, scripture must be its own expositor. Mm -hmm. And repeatedly, you'll find that in, in Adventist hermeneutics. The, let the Bible explain itself. Yes. And the rest of his rules are let every bearing the, on, on the subject in scripture have right. its proper weight. And it's right. all comparing scripture with scripture. So mm -hmm. the Rio de Janeiro document was not a new thing. Not at all. Um, but in 2015, nothing was changed secretly right. by a private group. Well, and the idea being, like going back to the title of the critique, yes. right? There's two adjectives there, contemporary conservative Adventist hermeneutics. So there's not just Adventist hermeneutics. That's there's right. like the conservative hermeneutic, right? right? And it's the contemporary one, as though there's a now, there's a way that conservatives look at the scripture that's not how Advent. The reality is, as Mark brought up, that from the time of William Miller and Ellen White and all the other pioneers to today, Seventh-day Adventists have had very simple, very straightforward understanding of Scripture that it should be taken as it reads and let the Bible interpret itself. And the Rio de Janeiro document, the Rio document as yes. known colloquially, is simply a codification uh, of the fact that we have always read and we intend to stay with a plain reading of Scripture just as it and reads. And the reason for the 2015 reaffirmation is because of these kinds of things. And, and here at the bottom of it, what's happening is there are people who, who, want, who don't want to believe Adventist lifestyle. Mm. They don't want to follow certain principles, and yet they want to call themselves Bible-believing Christians. They don't want to believe in creation. They don't want to believe in something that's out of step with comedy. Yeah. So they say, oh, that's your hermeneutic. Yeah, I believe what the Bible says. So you got this, you've got this. <laughs> I'm just laughing because, and I'm reading earlier, you, you, I think you used the phrase like... Yeah, claiming to believe the Bible, but not what it says. Right, like, oh, exactly. I believe the Bible. And that's the thing. We talk about creation. Oh, I believe in creation. I believe... Uh, uh, I believe the Bible, I just don't believe creation. Right. I believe the Bible, I just don't believe the virgin birth. Right. I believe the Bible, I just don't believe Jesus performed miracles. What in well, the then world what would you, you say that you about? do believe, right? So and, and I wrestle with that. I said to you, I don't know if this is a, if this is a thing that you, you grow up in the Adventist faith and you stay in the church kind of thing. Because my mm -hmm. family, although we were in the Adventist church when I was young, we mm -hmm. left the church all during my formative teen years and into my mm -hmm. young adult years. When I, through my own personal study and obviously the mercy of God, 
came to an understanding that what the Seventh-day Adventist Church teaches is Bible truth. But mm -hmm. if I didn't believe that, I just wouldn't be a Seventh-day Adventist. Right, right. Like, why am I, why are you going to fight to be a Christian, but don't make me believe in, you yeah. know, creation or the flood or that? Yeah. I just don't get it. Yeah, I, I kind of make the joke sometimes around my family, like, yeah, I like pickles, I just don't like how they taste. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I like them, but not for food. Well, that's the whole point of them. <laughs> it's like right. saying, I believe the Bible, but not what it says. Yes. Then, then you don't believe the Bible. That's the bottom line. And of course, then as Seventh-day Adventist, part of believing the Bible, we've touched on this, that's is right. the belief in the gift of prophecy. The yes. gift of prophecy is not an addendum to the Bible. It's the Bible. Mm. God himself in his word has told us there will be prophets. And specifically in the last days, the gift Prophecy. Right. And the function of the prophet has always been to bring clarity to areas of scripture where man messes it up with his own spin and interpretation. Sorry. And so to say, well, I, you know, I believe in the Bible. God, through the spirit of prophecy, has affirmed us in the creation story and in the right. flood and these other types of things. Anyway. And to take your statement there to make sure people understood it correctly, when you said the spirit of prophecy is the Bible, what you mean by that, it's the Bible yes. that affirms the spirit of prophecy. So if we were to say, I believe the Bible, but not the spirit of prophecy that the Bible told us to listen to, exactly. then that would be a denunciation of the very Bible we claim to believe. And so the same rules, by the way, of interpretation apply to the readings of Ellen White, to the writings of Ellen White as we do the Bible. That's this right. one way of reading it, it's just as it's written and allow those inspired documents to interpret themselves. No, when we get into these discussions and people will say, well, don't put, the, put Ellen White above the Bible. I'm going to tell you that if you have to put Ellen White above the Bible, you've got a false prophet on your hands. Mm. True prophets of God didn't contradict scripture. That's you don't right. have a problem there. You don't have, you know, so it's, it's one the of those implication is that there's arguments. A, that there's yeah, some sort like, of contest and you've got to pick one or the other. It's when the reality the is it's a natural flow because it's coming from the same source. That's right. But as we've gone through this class, we have demonstrated, and I believe the, the contributors of the quarterly have demonstrated uh, very well from scripture, mm -hmm. the position, you know, not the conservative Adventist hermeneutic, but the Adventist view of scripture, which is... We believe the Bible. <laughs> and the words and of so, the Bible. And so, as you had uh, alluded to here, the, in fact, on uh, Sabbath afternoon's lesson, there's a couple uh, statements in that paragraph that really grab my attention. In mm -hmm. the second paragraph, it makes this point. The Bible assumes the existence of a God who personally acts in history. It does not try to prove that existence. Mm. And when we're talking about history this week or whatever else, it's interesting. The Bible writers don't ever try to prove that the Bible is true. Right. And so what the, I guess what the contributors are trying to say is we're going to look at some outside sources and evidences that help us to have faith in the Bible. Mm -hmm. But the reality is the Bible writers just spoke and Jesus himself like you just need to believe it. Right. They wrote it as though it were true because they regarded it as true. They inherently assumed that you would too. So when I tell you a story about my day, say I went down to Taco Bell and you're like, whoa, 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 yeah. prove that. Let me see I the receipts. It. It's like, well, I, I didn't think of bringing the receipts with me. It's like, well, didn't you think you'd have to prove it? It's yeah. like, no, I just thought you just kind of take it yeah, as true. Where you, you, you grew up in Tennessee. I did. Yeah. I grew up in Tennessee and I, how do I know that? You know, it's like, <laughs> exactly. it's history. It's, it's and just, you're stating it as history. Why would I, what reason right. do I have to disbelieve And so the you? Bible authors don't write from an idea that they're going to be speaking to an audience of skeptics, so they're right. always having to prove every little statement. They're just like writing Like, I'm just trying to tell true. you the history. Yeah, I'm just telling you stuff. And so what the lesson does, in fact, at the end of that Sabbath afternoon lesson, it says, this week we'll look at some key issues in history as portrayed in the Bible and at some of the archaeological evidence that helps substantiate history as expressed in the Bible, specifically things that people who claim to believe the Bible, but not what it says, yeah. <laughs> say, well, I don't know if I believe, for example, we go into Sunday's lesson, David, Solomon, and the monarchy. Mm -hmm. You know, so there are people who either don't believe, and the lesson highlights that they don't believe some don't believe that David even existed. Right. Or Solomon existed. You know, or, or the more modified or, version would be like, I mean, I know existed probably, but it surely wasn't as wealthy or as extensive right. or as notable as we regard Solomon, it, you know. where the queen of Sheba is coming to see the uh, kingdom and all that. No, no, no. That's it a little much. A, it was a little town, village. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like this empire or yeah. whatever else. And so there's variant views on it. Right. So what do we find from the Bible? And what do we find from archaeology that may um, confirm what the Bible says. Okay. So let's look at that. Uh, first of all, the statements that were made there. And before we do that, okay. even, um, I, the lesson, and I'm not going to read this, but the lesson poses the question, what if David didn't exist? 
-hmm. You know, I mean, so, so entertain the thought. Somebody comes along, oh, I believe the Bible. I don't believe, first of all, we don't believe the flood, right? We right. don't believe That's the already, we creation. We deal with other lessons. Right? And so now we keep on going down the line. Mm -hmm. I don't think David existed. Well, what is that? How does that impact us? Mm -hmm. What happens if David didn't exist? Well, right, and they draw out some pretty important things. First of all, Israel wouldn't have existed like we thought it right. would, and Solomon Jerusalem, wouldn't have built the temple. And, which was I mean, established by David. Exactly, and his wouldn't. son Solomon and the wealth that was there. And more importantly, when it comes to, because they'll say, like, I'm not sure about David, but I believe in Jesus. Well, wait a minute. Jesus, <laughs> a his credibility David. is a direct descendant <laughs> of David. It was prophesied to be such. The genealogies recorded. So if David wasn't real, then if Solomon wasn't real, then where along the line do you get to, but Jesus was real? It, right. At some point, and, and I think we discussed this earlier. Uh, but and the whole idea of the king of Israel. You know, David, it was David was of the tribe of Judah. That's where the kings came from. So all that's tied in. Right. And in last week's lesson, we talked about how if you discredit, say, the creation story, then you have to kind of move to, like, where does it actually start being history? And a lot of people will then say, well, the flood also isn't history, so you have to take that out. And, but there's genealogies that go back into that time frame. So at some point, you have to say, this one was real, and the one before it was not real. Right. And here, we're just scooching the line forward, and some people will say, well, David also was perhaps a fictional character. At least it was <laughs> overblown. It was, right. and, and you start moving the line closer and closer to Jesus. Then all of a sudden, it's not a surprise when people are like, you know, Jesus really wasn't quite the figure that history. <laughs> right. And then, then it comes back to, I believe the Bible, but not what it says. Right. Well, then what do you believe in at all? So this exactly. is what a lot of the, it's a creeping compromise that really has detrimental impact on our faith. Exactly. Well, and so the lesson brings out at the end of the first paragraph on Sunday, that the history as it reads in scripture is precisely what gives Israel and the church its unique role in mission. Mm. You, can't, you can't separate the two. Um, so they bring up, uh, moving forward there to the next paragraph, they bring up an example of an archeological find, recent excavations it says that revealed a massively fortified garrison city from the time of Saul and David overlooking the valley. Two contemporaneous gates were excavated since most cities in ancient Israel had only one gate, this characteristic may help to identify the site as Sha'areim, uh, 1 Samuel 17:52, which in Hebrew means two gates. So there are archaeological things, and this is just a for instance mm -hmm. of so many things that are found that will help corroborate Bible history. Not that we should need that, mm -hmm. but there are things that, uh, evidences that we have found that help us to know that it is an authentic history. Well, also, if you do, let's come back to the Jesus connection, especially yes. with David and Solomon and these individuals that were written as history in the, in the Old Testament. Jesus comes along as the quintessential New Testament figure, right. but he doesn't refer to them in an allegorical way or as a metaphor or as a figure. He refers to, I mean, I'm thinking of Matthew chapter 12, verse 3. Yes. Have you not read what David did? That's another one of those have you not read statements. Yeah, exactly. He just picked up the Bible and looked at it and said, well, David did this. And notice he regards David as a past, as, as his figure and as a past tense figure who took actions. Right. He was an individual who existed and did some stuff. Yes. And it was written down in scripture. So Jesus just picks up that Bible and says, have you not read what David did? And he goes yes. on to explain. The same thing you see in Luke chapter 2, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 12, 12 verse 27, where Jesus refers to the ancient Israelite history saying, even Solomon, and not just Solomon as an individual, right. but Solomon in all his glory. Right. Right. And so he's comparing. Was not arrayed like all the lilies not, right. or whatever else. So, so again, you have Solomon, a real figure, and he gives some qualifiers mm -hmm. like he was in all of his glory. So he wasn't just a small figure with a, you know. No. And that's a direct, I mean, that speaks directly to the history of Solomon being this king at the right. time he was king. The, the, the silver in Israel was as plentiful as stones. So right. you have this, all his glory. He was the king of this empire at the time Israel right. was at its zenith. So and in Jesus much the same way, yeah, in much the same way as Jesus referred back to the creation story, have you not read in the beginning? And he would quote about Adam and Eve. I mean, if this Eve. is, again, with some critics say, well, you know, Israel, maybe David existed in Solomon, but it wasn't on that scale. Right. Then it would be goofy for Jesus to come along and say Solomon in all his, you know, all glory. glory. You, know, he he that, you remember that little village with the, the two, two or three houses in it? <laughs> exactly. You know, I mean. He's referring to a grand yes. scale thing that uh, he believed was real because it was. Because it Yes, and it's recorded in yeah, scripture and, history. And you were talking about how in the book of Acts, the Apostle yes. Paul would speak of it in the same way that Jesus would, right? You think of Acts chapter 13, he affirms the history yeah. of Samuel and Saul and David. That's right. So time and again, Jesus and other New Testament authors would look back or refer back to Old Testament history 
from creation to the flood to the characters like David and Solomon and mm -hmm. other figures, and they would just refer to it as kind of a duh, like have yeah. you not read, did you not know? Well, and incidentally, y you and I have added this to the lesson. The lesson was focusing on the archeological aspect of it, mm -hmm. but the point is, you know, because some people will argue, and I know, you know, they're coming from the mindset that, well, somebody wants proof. And so archaeology is proof. But what proof is archaeology if you won't believe the people who... Like, who were there to yeah, see Yeah, like what Jesus said it, and, and Paul said it, and it, no, I don't believe it, don't believe it, don't... You don't believe anybody in a scripture, and then right. what does the archaeology do? So, and, and, the, and the contributors would, in fact, I'll make that point a little bit further on, mm -hmm. but... Uh, all of the Bible writers affirmed these, these histories. Right. And there were some other examples that were given there. Isaiah, Hezekiah, Sennacherib, yeah, all these that, kind that of figures. Yeah, that story of Isaiah, which is mm -hmm. it's a fascinating story. I love the story, right? Sennacherib okay. is, is the king of Assyria. He is wiping out everybody. And he comes and sets his sights on Israel and Judah. Mm -hmm. And he sends message to Hezekiah, king of Judah, and he says to them, look, none of the other king, another, sorry, none of the other gods of the, of the other nations were able to protect them from me. What makes you think you're going to be protected? Mm -hmm. And he just urges them su to submit to his authority. Mm -hmm. And so Hezekiah, you know, as the story goes in the, in the lesson highlights, I really hope that when you're studying the lesson, you are going to Looking the passages the and reading yeah. the passages. And it takes us all the way through the passage in Isaiah and uh, the chronicles in this in the story. He here. lays it before the Lord there, right? And he lays the letters, the, the the threatening letter of Sennacherib before the Lord, and says, "Look, Lord, the the reason the other gods could not protect the other nations is they aren't gods, but you're the true God, you're the Almighty God, and Lord deliver." And the Lord basically says to Hezekiah, "Since you've come to me and you're relying on me, this is what you're going to send back to Sennacherib." And he basically says, "You're going to, you're done. You know, you're, yeah, <laughs> you're you're done." And and um, in a nutshell. And then um, the Bible tells us that the Assyrians, and this will make more sense in a moment, but in those days it was typical for a, when, a, when a, a king's army would go against another nation, they would surround, they would lay siege. Mm -hmm. They'd camp them out. They'd just put their soldiers around that city until the people inside either yielded and gave up or became so weak from not being able to cut off food and water mm -hmm. and everything. And then they'd come in and they'd just take them captive. But you, a siege never ended. In fact, the, the siege in Jerusalem was so amazing at the destruction of Jerusalem because the soldiers pulled off. It was like, what happened? Mm -hmm. You know, when you look at Israel's history. So, you know, when somebody laid siege, that that's it. it. Yeah. You, either one side or the other is going to win. There's no draw. Well, here in, in uh, the story of Sennacherib, the Bible says that, Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, and in one night, an angel came down and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. Mm. Now, that's the, the history of it. And so, the, of course, some people question that history, and did that really happen? What's interesting is that there have been several accounts written, recorded by Sennacherib himself that we've found, one of which the lesson brings this up. In fact, I, I wrote it down here, but let me see uh, so I can refer our our viewers to it. It's on Monday's lesson and it's in the second paragraph. And one of those records of Sennacherib's um, siege on Judah. Jerusalem, Judah, yep. he says, as for Hezekiah the Judean, I shut him in his city like a bird in a cage. And the lesson goes on to say, there is no description of destroying Jerusalem and no account of captives being taken into slavery. Again, you have to understand, when you understand the nature of siege, this is a fail, a major fail. Like, you laid siege, and then what happened? Nothing. Nothing. Because <laughs> there's, there's nothing he can well, say. And plus, you don't well, want to go record that uh, my army was wiped out and everything didn't work out, so I'll just exactly. do the good part where I besieged him, and then we'll walk away. So right? we have the historical record that there was an encounter between Sennacherib and from Hezekiah. from the man himself, right. And... Uh, it doesn't tell us how that siege ended, which was all the dead Assyrian soldiers. Certainly it didn't end in the captivity of Hezekiah or his people. Mm. And uh, so you have the, the element of the historical verification of the interaction and the existence of these characters. Mm. And you just don't have Sennacherib telling the rest of the story. But <laughs> right. you don't have a lot of other conclusions, even from what he did share. Amen.
Now, let's take a look at some of the other figures that they t the text brought up that people will often um, yes. kind of uh, doubt or have a very skeptical view about. Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, and Babylon, all those things recorded in the book of Daniel. Yes. You know, there's a lot of questions about the book of Daniel and the, and the man himself um, because, you know, one of the things I find interesting is that one of the big uh, uh, critiques of the book of Daniel is it had to be written later. Yes. Because it's so accurate that it couldn't have been telling the That's future right, the from prophetic, the time of what he claims to have written it, right, in the, the 6th century. The foretellings, right. how, how would anybody be able to foretell the future like that? Right. Amen. So, so, exactly. And so people <laughs> will say, well, clearly it's fraudulent because it's so accurate. And we would say it's so accurate because it's genuine. Fraudulent in the sense that it couldn't have been written by Daniel, who lived right. in the 6th century. It had to be written later. And the funny thing is, it, it's, really a, a, it's really put some of the skeptics in a pickle because you want to say it was written, for example, Daniel 2 carries us all the way through the division of uh, it, Europe, right. of, the, of the Rome into yeah, the nations modern of day Europe. Effect, yeah. Well, you can't go that far because since the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, there was a copy of, a, of the book of Daniel there. Mm. And that was, those books were dated to second century right, before the time of Christ. BC. Yeah. So you can't go later than that because you can, well, it was written later because it was already in existence. Right. So that's kind of, so even then you have prophecy that right, comes after Right, so how would you gotten that, Rome and the dividing of Rome and the European... But yeah. at least it's a little bit later. And so <laughs> a lot of the critical scholars say, well, Daniel was written by somebody else, not Daniel, mm -hmm. and uh, who posing as Daniel, and uh, it was written later like you said, because of right. the accurate, accurate uh, hi, uh, prophecy. Right. Now, the fact that Daniel was so well-written, I believe, speaks to its authenticity. Absolutely. Where others would say that speaks to its other nature. But there are some, like, some details, some nuances within that. For instance, the, uh, the existence even of Belshazzar, right? Yes. Because in Daniel chapter 5, you have the... the well, before we go to Belshazzar, just okay. briefly on the, the authorship of Daniel. Did okay. Daniel write the book of Daniel? And we talked about how in Matthew, Jesus... In Matthew 24, verse 15 says, right. when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, not the guy who wrote the book of Daniel. Mm. Okay? But the critical scholar has argued, well, here's the problem. Daniel, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the book that we have, the language does not match up with the typical Aramaic, much of the book of Daniel is Aramaic, the Aramaic language of the 6th century BC when Daniel lived. So it couldn't have been written in the 6th century. Mm. Now that's where they leave it. What they don't tell you is that neither does it match with the language of 2nd century BC when these scholars say it was written. Mm. But what it has been found to match, the linguistics of Daniel, the language that's employed, is the imperial Aramaic that would have been used in the palace in the 6th century BC where Daniel happened to work. Right. So it wasn't common 6th century. It was actually imperial. It was royal. It was, That's a, right. it was exactly what and you so would expect. And so we have confirmation right. there that Daniel was the author, you know, if we didn't want to take the words of Jesus himself. Right. All right. So go back to Belshazzar now, because that was, that was another one of those contested points of historicity of Daniel. Yes. Did Belshazzar even exist as the book of Daniel claims? Right, because for the longest time, the only record historically that we had of Belshazzar was in Scripture. Mm. We didn't have an archaeological, we didn't have a historical anywhere else. So but critics will look at that lack of evidence outside of the Bible yes. and say, well, clearly this is fictional. Right. You guys made up, or someone made up, this whole king and the whole story that goes with it and all the That's things. Right. That, but something happened. It was 1924, well, right? It's very funny, and this is recorded in the Seventh day Adventist Bible commentary. Uh, volume 4, page 807, and uh, they say that confirmation of the conclusion that a co-regency between Nabonidus and Belshazzar had existed. So let me pause here. Nabonidus was the father of Belshazzar. Nebuchadnezzar was his grandfather. And, and a co-regency is where a king and his son reign together at the same time. Mm -hmm. Now, this is fascinating because in Daniel chapter 5, when Belshazzar has his feast, and there's the handwriting on the wall and he can't interpret the handwriting and he invites Daniel in finally after his mother encourages him, whatever. He tells Daniel that if you interpret this, I'll make you the third ruler in the kingdom. Mm. Now you read that and say, well, wait a minute, you're the kid. Why, why do I got to be the third? Why can't I be the second? Because he was the second. Mm. His father, Nabonidus, was the first. And, and that was confirmed in history. And this is what it brings out. 
confirmation of the conclusion that a co-regency between Nabonidus and Belshazzar had existed finally came in 1924 when Sidney Smith published the so-called verse account of Nabonidus of the British Museum, in which Nabonidus himself states that he, quote, entrusted the kingship to his eldest son, Belshazzar. Mm. And there, historical record was found for Belshazzar and a confirmation that he was co-regent with his father, which explained the third... So prior to then, we had the Bible history, and now we, the Bible history is confirmed with archaeology. Now, here's the fascinating part. Yeah. In fact, I don't know if you want to share this. Well, I just, I, yeah, I, I want to share this because it's so funny because you would assume that in light of that archaeological evidence coming, coming to, right. to, to fruition, people would say, well, I guess I was wrong. Well, the critical scholars. Exactly. The people who had been lobbing Daniel those criticisms. Daniel must have been written in the 6th century. Exactly, they we would wrong. just relent of their argument. There's no way. But as the Bible commentary continues to quote from that source, it says, the, the scholar then says, we shall presumably never know how our author learned. Notice they don't call yes. Daniel the author, the mysterious... <laughs> right, uh, second yes. century author. Yeah. We shall presumably never know how our author learned that Belshazzar was functioning as king when Cyrus took Babylon. So they've been proved wrong about their conclusions, but they're not willing to admit that the Bible might be well, right the fascinating in its thing claims. Is that, that what they're saying is, you know, there's no historical record outside the Bible until this 1924, right? So how did a guy in the second century know <laughs> if there's a, he wouldn't have known. That's right. He would have had to live then in the sixth century, which is right. the conclusion. And rather than give that up, like you're saying, it's like, right. no, 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 I'm not gonna admit that. Uh, he, he, he definitely wasn't Daniel. Right. Definitely didn't live in the second century. We just can't, yeah. we just don't know how he But did. there seemed to be this figure who <laughs> did know the imperial language at the time and wrote in it. That's right. And did know the intimate details of the passing of the torch in the, in the, in the uh, uh, monarchy. Yet they're like, nah, I can't figure it out. And it could we're be true. just <laughs> touching on a couple of just so many so, archaeological yeah. details that could confirm scripture history. Right. Well, and then and this. And you made the point. No, go ahead. You were just making the point about the, the historicity of Daniel, why it's so important to us. Absolutely, because if Daniel is um, deemed to be inaccurate in its history, then certainly it's going to be inaccurate in its prophecy, right? right? Because Daniel, and we're going to get into this in this little, little sample of where we're going next Sabbath, but yes. the history of the Bible is important because as Seventh-day Adventists, we understand that the Bible just presumes an unbroken chain of events from the time of the authors all the way through the end of time. So history and prophecy yes. go together in an unbroken chain. So if you can, and I think Satan is very adept at this, shake confidence in the history, then certainly the prophecies are completely fictitious. They're, That's right. But if the history is accurate, then that gives a certain amount of credibility and weight to those prophecies that we're gonna be looking at how to interpret next week. Absolutely. So Daniel, I can imagine is one of those books that Jesus wants to make sure we study and Satan wants to make sure to discredit. That's right. And uh, I praise the Lord that he has given us evidence to see that it is trustworthy. Yeah, well, that, that's just saying that next week's lesson is going to be, what do we want to say? <laughs> it's not fascinating, but it's going to be, it's going to be a great a study and you don't want to miss it. In fact, this is a good time to mention that at our next week's study, we are not going to have a pre-recorded program. That's right. Next week, we will be live at the Village Seventh-day Adventist Church as part of their camp meeting alternative programming, right? Oh, yes. And they've got a good lineup of speakers, and we're actually... Monumental been, study. Yeah, it's going to be fantastic. Ah, <laughs> oh, I did it again. <laughs> but we're, we've been asked to lead out in the Sabbath School program for that live event, so tune in uh, next Sabbath, and you'll see details posted on the Michigan Conference Facebook page, and I'm sure they're going to have a lot of their, uh, references to it, advertisements for it. But Sabbath School will be happening from the Michigan Conference next week, but it's going to be live from the Village Seventh Avenue Church. So make sure you tune in next Sabbath morning. Yes, indeed. Well, anyway, continuing. We, the, le the lesson moves into the historical Jesus. Okay. In other words, um, I don't say disregarding, but from an outside perspective, just the person of Jesus. Did he really exist in history? Mm. And it's interesting that uh, the existence and position not just of Jesus, but the whole surrounding, mm -hmm. you know, the life of Jesus, the final scenes, crucifixion, mm -hmm. what have you, the existence and position of uh, Caiaphas, the high priest, of Jesus of Nazareth, of his execution by Pontius Pilate, mm -hmm. during the reign of Tiberius Caesar, mm -hmm. by the Roman government, etc., etc. All of this is affirmed through secular history. Yes. And so, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that this is why, you know, it seems like if you're just going to tell, especially if it's 
quasi-mythological, the story of Jesus, yes. why would you root it in such times and places? Like in the third year or this time of yes. this man at this position, you know, and I'm thinking think of, of Luke um, chapter three. Exactly, that's where I was headed. That the apostle, uh, not the apostle, but uh, Luke in his presentation of the gospel, make sure to ground it in real places and times, right? So I'm going to read here from the beginning of Luke chapter 3, verse 1. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor over Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Aturia, and the region of Triconitus, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, why? Oh, he keeps going. Where Annas and Caiaphas <laughs> were high priests, the word... He finally gets to what he's trying to say, but he grounds the, 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 the history of Jesus in the contemporary That's society right. and culture in which it was. So if you are going to disregard Jesus as a historical figure, he's linked it to Tiberius Caesar and Herod and all these Absolutely. other individuals that you can go back in and not even see that they were there. He puts time frames in the 15th year of, right? So he grounds it in such, um, uh, you, can, you can test it. Right? You can right. go back and research it and see that it actually existed. Well, it's also, as we were talking earlier, the whole crucifixion scene, the, the, the whole uh, event, Passion Week and what have you, is dependent on the, the, the history mm. of those individuals and their positions, what have you. For example, uh, it, it's dependent on the fact that the Jews could not put a man to death mm -hmm. by their law. It's dependent on um, Pontius Pilate being able to do that very thing. Mm -hmm. So they could appeal to the power of the state to do what they couldn't do. Pontius Pilate stood before Jesus in John 19 and says, don't you understand that I have power to crucify you and I have power to let you go. So that him having that power was key to them appealing to him. Him being in a position that was um, where he was uh, dependent on the the attitudes of the of his constituents mm. and the, the the whole political re you know for example um Pilate didn't want to put jesus to death mm. and how'd they pressure him well we're going to tell we're going to say that uh you're not caesar's no friend. friend of caesar yeah and and because he was worried about what that would do to his influence and what have you he buckled for the but if he didn't have that position you know right. if he did if the if the if uh, Annas uh, and Caiaphas weren't in the positions they were in, and, and mm -hmm. all of those historical pieces, mm -hmm. you, this, it wouldn't have rolled out the same way. Right. And so again, if the gospel so writers were just trying mm -hmm. to speak of a spiritual, um, spiritual platitudes or moralistic figure, we'll call Jesus, why did they go to such great lengths to tie it so closely and the, interweave right. the story with real historical figures that could be documented and researched and, and demonstrated to be accurate. They weren't trying to hide the history. They were demonstrating that as one of the evidences that it really, really happened. That's right. And uh, the lesson makes the point on uh, Wednesday, last paragraph on that page, I believe it's paragraph six, says these archaeological discoveries and historical sources provide an extra non-biblical framework for the existence of Jesus, mm. who was worshipped within the first 50 years after his death. The Gospels themselves are the primary sources about Jesus, and we should study them carefully to learn more about Jesus in his life. So they're just trying to make the point, look, we're going to look at archaeological evidences, those help us to have confidence in the history, but the reality is the, the, the meat of the story is in the Word. Mm. You can find out that a man named Jesus of Nazareth existed, but to find out who he was and mm -hmm. what he taught, you go to Scripture for that. Mm. And so, um, as we've looked at, secular history attests to the existence of Jesus. And this brings us to, and perhaps our viewers are familiar with uh, what's been called C.S. Lewis's trilemma. Trilemma is when you have three options and none of them may be what you want. They're mutually exclusive. But you exclusive, have yeah. to choose right. one of the three. And he was responding to the fact that uh, there are people who say, in, in obviously in face of plain history, okay, no, I believe that Jesus, uh, Jesus of Nazareth existed. And then commenting, you know, I think he was a good man, mm -hmm. a good moral teacher, et cetera. And you've heard this. And Lewis said, now wait a minute, 
This is a guy who went around calling himself the son of God, descended mm. from heaven. Yeah. You don't, no, 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 no. Claiming no. to you, do miracles. Yeah, right. <laughs> he said that, that is on the level of a man, in C.S. Lewis's words, who calls himself a poached egg. You know, I mean, <laughs> he's, a, he's out of his mind. Mm -hmm. And so his trilemma was, you've got three options and you've got to pick one. Jesus was either, he starts with a liar. He mm -hmm. said he was the Son of God. No, 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 no. He's either a liar and he's making it up, or he really believes it and he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord of glory who he says he is. Mm. And you need to make a decision. One, he's not it. You can't say, right. oh, he's a good moral teacher. No, you're a good yeah. moral teacher. You wouldn't lie. Exactly. If you're out of your mind mentally, right. you're or not a good moral teacher. Or you can't say he's a good philosopher or a wise right. man if he's a lunatic. Right? You can't be a liar or a lunatic and hold all the pieces of Jesus together. That's right. It's either he was who he claimed he was or he wasn't. That's right. it. That's right. Yeah. And you can't, and, and, and he wasn't, you can't say he didn't exist mm. because we have the evidence that he did. Right. And so you think of the skeptics. And so I'm, I'm going with option three. Uh, amen. The Lord of <laughs> glory. That's right. Well, I think of John chapter 20, right? And, yes. uh, and Jesus' encounter with his own disciples, right? Yes. Because, I mean, he had to deal with disbelief, even where people who could see him and talk mm -hmm. to him. And in this case, you know, doubting Thomas is like, I will not believe until <laughs> I put my hands in the scars and yes. feel the wounds. And graciously, Jesus allows him to do that. That's right. right. But his comment is, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's right. The idea being that even the people who were there had a hard time believing. Jesus saying, look, I've given you every evidence that what I am is accurate, that is true. But you're always going to have room to doubt. Mm -hmm. Even if, if we're talking to someone who had walked with Jesus, talked with them, seen the miracles for himself. And then even after his resurrection say, well, I'll only believe if I can. Right. Like there's got to be one more. Pe and then as soon as I have that one, I'll believe. Jesus is like saying, you can have that evidence, but really... Faith is the true demonstration that you truly believe, that you yeah. act on faith. That's right. And, and let's talk about the nature of faith Well, a the bit. lesson, so the lesson then moves into, mm -hmm. in the histories of the Bible, those men and women of faith, mm -hmm. be, again, of faith being the ones who did believe and oftentimes not seeing. That's right. Yet believed and acted on that and changed, and this is the amazing thing, we're talking about this, the history we live in, the, 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 the present reality we live in, the, the, was shaped by the history of people who believed the word of God. The freedoms mm. we have in this country in America are because of Christians, not atheists, mm. who believed and risked their very lives and gave their very lives mm. so that people could have the freedom to study the word and believe according to their conscience Mercy. and things like that. And so so the, the faith, you know, the lesson points out through the uh, book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, the men and women of faith and how their actions of faith shaped. Right. The, the, and, and, and you brought the out the point in our earlier conversation that that when you look at the, you know, the great hall of faith, right, the faith yes. chapter when Hebrews uh, not only defines faith, but it also gives examples of the faithful. That's that right. It doesn't just say, by faith they believed. Right. It says, by faith, and you notice that every one of those is followed by an action of some sort, some sort of verb, right? They built. Uh, Abraham went out, right? Yes. That Noah prepared the ark. That, that it, it was done not as like an intellectual study or an academic kind of esoteric like, now right. I have a new opinion. I have faith. That's no, right. they acted on it and did things that would seem kind of almost crazy. Well, the lesson makes that point on Thursday. It's the second paragraph. There's a big list of, of men and women of faith. And uh, in the paragraph following, it says this, faith is not simply a belief in something or someone. It is acting in response to that belief. And that's not a definition we're making up. That's what we see in Hebrew. Mm -hmm. By faith, so-and-so did this and did that and did the other. That's mm -hmm. what the faith chapter teaches us. Uh, so let me read that again. Faith is not simply a belief in something or someone. It is acting in response to that belief. It is a faith that works. This is what is reckoned as righteousness. It is those faith actions that change history. Each of these actions depends on a reliance on God's word, depends on a reliance on mm -hmm. God's word. Take the example of Noah. Mm -hmm. We were talking about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the example of Noah, I mean, 
think about, we, we look back and we just think it's a children's story. Noah built the ark, the animals came mm -hmm. in and they floated through safely. Which, but from Noah's perspective, if that, which we hold true, is accurate history, Noah was called by God. Mm -hmm. He's told that there was going to be a worldwide flood. And he was going to destroy all life, number one. Number two, that he had, been, had the responsibility of warning others and number three, that tangible faith thing, not only the preaching, but the building of the ark for the saving of all who would That's believe. Right. So he had to go out and he knew there was a time frame to it. He had time to build this, but he didn't just believe that it was going to happen and sit back. He had to start work. And he That's started right. building a boat on dry land in preparation for an event called rain that had never and happened. a flood that had never happened. So well, for years he had to look silly. <laughs> I think about a, a statement A.T. Jones made in a sermon where commenting on that, he said that in the eyes of that generation, Noah built a monument to his folly. Like it's if it, mm. as if it wasn't bad enough to be wrong. You know, sometimes if you're not sure about something, you kind of hedge your bets. That's right. <laughs> like, like, where's my escape hatch? Once you start building that boat, there is no... Yeah, they're like, what's it for? That, that's, Rain, right. <laughs> worldwide flood. And so yeah. not only was he saying it, in fact, Ellen White comments, she says, every blow of his hammer was preaching to the people. Mm. You know, when you're building that boat, you, there's just a testimony there. But that, what, that, and let's, I mean, did that change the course of history? <laughs> Ever did it, yeah. We wouldn't be here. At all. Every yeah. one of us, you know, we talk about being descendants of Adam, we're also all descendants of Noah. True. Well, <laughs> so, and you think about kind of what you were saying, the monument to his folly yes. and how every blow, you know, was a testimony. You know, other places Ellen White refers to this uh, building time as a kind of a test of his faith because people, even philosophers or so-called scientists at the time would say, well, look at the scientific, there's never been rain, there's never been a flood, it doesn't work this way. It, and, and, and Mrs. White points out that he didn't always have good scientific sounding answers to it. He just, well, the Word of God said this. Well, so we actually have a statement to okay, that go ahead. effect. Um, Is it in here? I don't know. I don't yeah. See, yeah. In fact, I'll have you read that. But you're, you, I'm thinking to myself, you know, he preached for 120 years. I mean, if it was one or two years. But, you know, you're going on year 115, and there still hasn't been any evidence that there'd ever be rain. You know what I'm saying? Mm. So it's not just like a folly of a couple of years. It's like, look, man, when are you going to get over it? You've been doing this for 115 years and nothing is different. Well, why don't you read us that statement? Except your boat. It's from Signs of the Times, April 18, 1895. And it says, when they could not move Noah from his firm and implicit trust in notice, the word of God, they pointed to him as a fanatic, as a ranting old man, full of superstition and madness. Thus they condemned him because he would not be turned from his purpose by reasonings and theories of men. It was true that Noah could not controvert their philosophies or refute the claims of science so-called. I love the way that she mm. adds that there. Yeah. But he could proclaim the word of God, mm. for he knew it contained the infinite wisdom of the Creator, and as he sounded it everywhere, it lost none of its force and reality because men of the world treated him with ridicule and contempt. Mm. What a powerful testimony. It doesn't matter how much contempt and ridicule, the word of God standeth forever. That's right. And the man he asked to do that, notice the Lord didn't say, now look, no, I'm going to tell you how the rain's going to fall and how the fountains of the... And he didn't give him mm -hmm. all the science of it, even though it's true science. He That's said, right. your job is to build a boat and preach the word. That's it. And he just acted on that faith and praise the Lord we're here today because of it. That's right. And that's what we see in Hebrews 11. They all acted on the word of God. Mm -hmm. Even in the face of what seemed impossible, they trusted the word of God above their senses, above mm -hmm. anything else. And it not only proved faithful to them, mm. but it did change the course of history. Absolutely. As we know it. Yeah. Well, clearly, Mark, there's a lot that we could talk about and this yeah. could go on and on. We do have to conclude here. But one statement jumps to mind. It's from the book Education, page 173. And it was quoted mm -hmm. in Friday's uh, page yes. of the lesson quarterly. It says, the Bible is the most ancient and the most comprehensive history that men possess. It came fresh from the fountain of eternal truth, and throughout the ages a divine hand has preserved its purity. It lights up the far distant past where human research in vain seeks to penetrate. In God's word only do we behold the power that laid the foundations of the earth and that stretched out the heavens. Here only do we find an authentic account of the origin of nations. Here only is given a history of our race unsullied by human pride 
or prejudice. Repeatedly, hear only, hear, hear only, only, hear only, believe in the word. Amen. And friends, that's what exactly uh, is the point of this whole entire quarter is to not just have an interesting academic study or trivial pursuit of some nuance and little side issue, that this is the foundation of our faith is a reliance on the word of God. And it is true in history. It is true in moral teaching. It is true in prophecy, as we're going to look into next week. It is true in all of its parts. And so we need to lay aside any criticism. We can still be curious about how it folds, but just like those great uh, worthies of Hebrews 11, by faith we do. Amen. And I would trust that by faith each one of us wants to do as the Lord bids. So let's dedicate our lives again by faith to his leading as we close today. Let's bow our heads forward of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its historical accuracy. Thank you for its reliability so that we can have a firm foundation for our lives today and have a guide to the future as we know that the same Bible that told us about the past tells us what's coming ahead. Lord, help us to put our trust more deeply in Jesus and his word every day so that we can become more like Jesus and prepared for Jesus and his soon return. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.